Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Ever since the 2016 elections, I've been kind of obsessed with the following thought. We tend to think that Donald Trump got elected because his base of, in our imagination, angry, middle-class or lower-middle-class dispossessed white voters turned out in big numbers for him. But that's only part of the story. Because it's also true that if you look at people who voted for Barack Obama but stayed home instead of showing up to vote for Hillary Clinton, 51% of those voters were people of color. That's a significant number. And it means that we could also frame things a little differently. Instead of blaming the Trump voters for getting Trump elected, we could simply say, why didn't Hillary Clinton manage to appeal to voters of color in the same way that Barack Obama did? Now, that's a hypothesis and an obsession. It's not a full-blown theory. And I'm incredibly grateful that we have today to discuss this topic with us, Dr. Andre Perry. Andre is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at the famous Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., He works on race, structural inequality, education, economic inclusion, and recently wrote a fantastic and significant article called 
Black women are looking forward to the 2020 elections. Andre, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. One of the really profound points I think that you make in your research paper about black women is that it's not just that black women vote for black women or for other black candidates. It's that there's an overlap in policy interests between black women running for office, some black voters, as well as lots of other progressive voters representing different uh, racial backgrounds, different economic backgrounds. I think that's a hugely important point that we tend to forget. So I want to ask you, in light of that point, was there a lack of policy for Hillary Clinton? Did she not have policies that were sufficiently progressive to match African-American voters? Or was it really about personalities? Which was doing the heavy lifting, or is it both somehow? Uh, it's, it's, It's both, certainly. When you look at the candidates who are getting elected, they're... And and you hear this phrase all all the time. They're unapologetically black. Um, They will put forth uh, um, items that really fill out a black agenda um, um, for community improvement. So if you're not explicitly talking about improving or reducing the wage gap between black women and white men or black women and and white women, um, then you're really not speaking um, to the issues. So the core now, issue there it, is racial inequality, as you argue in your in your piece. Yeah, racial inequality is probably the number one and, and number two thing. And there are also issues that white Democrats simply do not raise. And so the issue of um, voting rights mm-hmm. are is something that black um, elected officials bring up, but white um, Democrats or Republicans, just uh, it doesn't rank as one of the issues that they're going to campaign on. And so why, if why you're not— that? Why don't Democrats wake up, smell the coffee, and realize that voting rights is a pretty excellent, crucial issue for them, especially if they need the votes of black people? Well, the, the privilege the of not really understanding that— people are actively taking your vote away. I mean, I hear all the time, well, there's nothing wrong with getting IDs or having people or having people um, bring their IDs to the polls. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's an easy fix. And and to a certain degree, black folk always catch up to the next new rule. But it, it but to ignore the active um um a pursuit to suppress black vote is a privilege that black folk just we don't have. And and over time, white politicians, regardless of party, just ignore that issue. So those are the policy issues. And we can talk more about why it is that um, even if it's purely on the basis of self-interest, white politicians don't get beyond the fact that they don't instinctively think about these things and raise them anyway. But that's the policy side. What about the, the politics side? What about the personalities? Do you, is it your view that it would have made a difference had Hillary Clinton had a person of color on the ticket with her? Oh, yeah. And I don't know if you remember, there were a bunch of memes um, during the uh, election cycle that she would sort of masquerade as being black here and there. And, and it was there was just a lack of authenticity of connecting to black voters. And, and that's true. I mean, the, um, choosing Tim Kaine, for instance, is, you know, uh, um, someone who can speak Spanish. Um, and, you know, the in the black and brown communities, we were saying, well, why didn't you just pick someone of, of Latin descent? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. um, it's the ultimate, and, the ultimate white guy diversification. I can speak another language. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So using race as a prop is something that she was charged doing um, throughout her career. And you doing think it resonated? It, you think that charge oh, resonated? A- Absolutely. I mean, at some point, you don't do what's politically expedient. You got to show what you're about. And, um, and I, you know, and I also believe that the Clintons in general, um, remember Bill Clinton was seen, uh, described as the first black president at some point, but, and he, and he clearly wasn't, not in terms of his policies, not in terms of just his being. Um, but they they managed to to use what, what symbols people, what, to show their their allegiance to black. But that's just not enough. It's interesting when you think back to it's a long time ago now. But when people actually said that, what what do you think they actually meant? I mean, it it was that the, he he showed affection for a black community, and um, wasn't it that he'd also but, overcome adversity in his own upbringing? Yeah, that that he was he he was a. a Poor folk. He he actually had strong ties to to um, black communities growing up, um, but that's just not enough. There's not enough political policy meat there. Mm-hmm. Um, what he, the remember? More people um, went to prison under his watch. More black people went to prison under his watch. Don't, don't we Welfare have to be reform? Don't we have to what, be a little fair about that though? I mean, so I'm very impressed by James Foreman Jr.'s uh, recent mm-hmm. prize-winning book where he says. I'm going to oversimplify it here, but that a significant part of African-American leadership at the national level actually supported some of the the crime reform stuff that Bill Clinton signed that led to many, many young African-American men being uh, incarcerated. You know, black folk are, um, we've internalized this narrative that we are broken. I often say there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve, mm-hmm. that we are, we're constantly blaming ourselves for the problem. In, in, in terms of voting, we say, well, we don't vote, even though our, our voting um, record has been at all-time highs in, in at least in the last um, um, eight to ten years. Um, but we also internalize this notion that if we can only do better amongst ourselves, then um, we we will get our just desserts. And um, we don't necessarily deserve these policies until we get our house in order. And that's just not—and that's no different than when I hear poli- politicians telling kids to pull their pants up and, and as if that's going to get them into to, to Harvard. Mm-hmm. You know that um, it's the Bill, that, the Bill it's, Cosby rhetoric. That absolutely. So um, yes, there were lots of black folk who um, supported the crime bill and a lot of other policies that Democrats um, endorsed, essentially to buy favor with white, um, sort of right-leaning Republicans. But at the end of the day, we compromised our our policy um, principles in the process. And just that's just not a way to go. Andre, you mentioned impediments to voting. And, you know, as we work our way to talking about 2020, I think this is a hugely significant issue. And I want to get your, your thoughts about it. One statistic that strikes me as very important is that if you control for socioeconomic status, primarily poverty, African-Americans actually vote at a slightly higher rate than their white counterparts. Um, that said, like other poor people, African-Americans who are poorer um, don't have fantastic turnout records. 
What do you see as the primary impediments? I mean, you've mentioned voter ID laws, but those are a relatively new innovation. What, what do you see as the genuine impediments to getting out the vote? Wow. Uh, one, the, the criminal justice system has really suppressed black male votes. Mm-hmm. And um, when you look at states, the, the gender differences in actual numbers, in di- actual different di- um, districts, um, is enormous. So you, you can have, in terms of uh, um, v- v- actual eligible voters, differences of 11, 12, um, in some cases, 15 percent. Um, Birmingham, for instance, there's a, a, a close to 11 um, point um, difference between eligible black male and black female. So, and, and that's And that's because, because of felon, felon disenfranchisement or absolute, people who are presently incarcerated or both. That both. But it, it, it's even more than that. It, it just creates a layer of suppression um, that, you know, voter ID laws and um, um, changing the days of, or, um, or having early voting or not having early voting, those things matter. But there are some substantive issues around criminal justice, around um, racial violence and policing. Remember, there are there's still intimidation tactics that occur all throughout um, the country. There were attempts to suppress youth vote um, this past election cycle. Um, and so uh, folks are intimidated. And, and, and there's some parallels there with um, our brown counterparts, so, um, our Latinx, mm-hmm. La- Latino mm-hmm. um, population. Um, the, the talk about immigration overall will have a, a, a suppression effect on voters. There's a reason why many um, um, of our brown um, um, counterparts are not voting. It's not because they don't want to or they're too lazy or they're disinterested. Um, but suppression is real, and, and intimidation tactics are some of the m- primary impediments for folks getting out to vote. So one thing that I hear an older generation of white liberals saying a lot around the suppression question is, there's no question that there's suppression, but look how brutal the suppression was under the era of segregation. And yet civil rights marchers bravely marched and fought, and in some cases even died, for the right to vote. And then that older generation of liberals who lived through that, especially white liberals who lived through that, but sometimes African-American liberals as well, say, well, that was suppression, and the proper response to suppression is activism rather than allowing oneself to be intimidated. You know, I often find myself in these intergenerational conversations, and I imagine maybe you do too. What do you say when the older generation makes that argument? I I think that they're not really not, um, they don't have a pulse of the energy that youth, particularly younger people are bringing to elections. Um, After Parkland, um, for instance, um, youth spoke not only with their their votes, but they they hit the streets marching and and many of them were too young to vote. Um, But youth are always um, latching on to movements and and trying to teach the rest of us where to go. The Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, um, really spoke to what youth want um, our elected officials to address. But the problem is, and this goes back to our earlier conversation, is that many elected officials simply don't put up um, policy proposals that match the energy of young people. Now, um, and back in the day, there was much more alignment between the civil rights leaders of of, of that time and their deployment of youth um, to address these issues. And by and large, 
um, young and um, older voters um, definitely aligned on what they wanted in terms of an agenda for for Black America. There's misalignment today. Um, the middle class, the sort of uh, the bougie class, mm-hmm. bougie Black mm-hmm. folk have very different needs mm-hmm. than low-income um, Black Americans. There's a lot of divergence in terms of interest. And so until... What's, um, a, what's an poli- example, just to, just to concretize it? Oh, I mean, criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. I mean, you still hear older Americans blame black youth for, for crime in the street. Mm-hmm. I mean, how often after a, uh, a police killing of a young man, you will hear older um, or older or elders say, well, what did that boy do to get shot? And, I mean, there's yeah. still yeah. This, um, this disbelief that black boys are that we have to be perfect mm-hmm. in order to get justice and but for a whole slew of of younger voters they they want quality policing no questions asked mm-hmm. and until um our politicians um recognize it and i and that's why I, I think this new wave of elected officials what they bring they're actually um listening to low income voters and responding, um, and and they're getting a response, and, and that's in terms of votes. So let's talk about that that new wave that you wrote about so interestingly. So uh, four more African American women represented in Congress than before the 2018 elections. That's a very marked and measurable improvement. The candidates who ran for office successfully, who were, as you put it, unapologetically black. Did they do what you your playbook says? Did they emphasize the racial inequality and the wage gap? And voting rights is that were those the issues that they made front and center in their races? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everyone from Lauren Underwood to going into some of the city races of the past, like London Breed, and then you have you know um, Jonna Hayes in Georgia mm-hmm. dealing with criminal justice. They you know, and and these are women that in many cases are not in majority black districts. Typically, the blueprint to get elected is to run in a majority black place. um, And you had numbers on your side, you mobilize the churches, you mobilize your social organizations, you get elected. Now, what you're seeing in in a lot of cases are are women um, able to use their social networks that, I mean, their sorority um, affiliations, their their church membership, and run on actual issues, health care, education, um, criminal justice. And young people in particular respond more to issues rather than race. And so if you can um, strike a chord on an, an, on an issue, you can actually get a great cross-section of the population, and that's what's happening um, across the country. That's why um, the, the, you see the most diverse Congress um, in, in our history, um, because they're actually speaking to issues and authentically addressing the needs of people of color. That's tremendously optimistic. In fact, it's one of the more optimistic things I've, I've heard on the topic. There are always downsides in life. So without, yeah. you know, without being a bummer, what are the downsides? What are the risks that an African-American candidate runs when she really needs m- the median white voter and she's leading with issues like racial inequality and voting rights, which, as you point out, aren't very salient for, for most whites? Well, but this is where I, I get frustrated when— you hear the rhetoric of, 
um, the the Democrats are not ready for these big ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, when you're talking about health care, um, when you're talking about a, a crime bill that was just passed um, recently, um, people have now an appetite for free college and universal um, early child um, childhood um, education. Um, big ideas are mattering now. Um, and, and this goes across party. In Alabama, Alabama has one of the most r- robust preschool programs in the country. Um, and so these issues, these big ideas, um, people are, are, are hearing them. And, and it's okay to put forth issues around race and justice because, if one, if you don't, you're going to negate um, black people from your base. And if you're a Democrat, there's no way you can really win without um, black folk coming out, not just in terms of numbers, just in, in, just in terms of mobilizing people in various states. Um, but if you're smart, um, you can show that you can have a big idea that it, that shows that we're all in this together. For, for instance, the um, voting rights stuff is it's this key to a to a democracy. If you do not have a, a right to vote, um, then you're really not a person in a democratic society. You you don't have um, you, you you're not a member if you don't have a vote. So that's something that I think Democrats should embrace. But you rarely hear things like universal voting. So well, look at, looking forward to 2020, I mean, somebody is listening. Because if you look at H.R. 1, the, mm-hmm. you know, the bill that, um, the first bill adopted by, introduced, and then will eventually be adopted by the Democratic House of Representatives. Not that that's going to get signed by Donald Trump or necessarily pass the Senate, but nevertheless, an important symbolic right. document. Right. It actually does make voting rights pretty significant. Yes. It even goes so far as to recommend that voting uh, voting day be made a federal holiday so that That's people right. can show up and vote. So that does reflect somebody in the Democratic Party is hearing your message. That, and, that, and that would not have come up if black women um, would not have brought it up. And, and chiefly Stacey Abrams of Georgia, mm-hmm. who did not um, win the governorship there. Um, she has taken that on. Um, that's her mantle. And um, and Democrats need to um, get on board and not just to use her as a prop, because this is the danger um, that Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams, that their near um, their near close wins um, will turn into sort of a, a prop for the party that they um, are touted as maybe a, pres- a vice presidential mm-hmm. candidate mm-hmm. or they're they're shuffled around the country to say, look who we have on our side. No, you you need to develop a platform. They need to be a part of your platform um, moving into 2020. What do you think about this phenomenon of people who narrowly miss and then become heroes of the party? I mean, Stacey Abrams is one example, but Better O'Rourke is another. You know, he also, his biggest accomplishment thus far is losing by not that much to Ted Cruz, but he did lose. Do you have an instinct about what that means for the Democratic Party. And I'm a little bit skeptical because uh, I was fearful that a loss would um, translate to a lack of investment in the next Stacey Abrams or in Stacey Abrams in the future. Mm But, um, you know, I I shouldn't be that cynical. Um, But um, history has shown me if if you don't win um, and you're black, people tend to forget you very quickly. But that doesn't seem to be happening, at least thus far, to Stacey Abrams. That's I mean, as exactly you said, there's right. the, that creates the counter risk that she'll be used as a kind of token or a tool. 
see, I look at it a little bit different. The, 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 the Doug Jones race in Alabama for the special election mm-hmm. for the Senate was really telling. There wasn't an investment from the, the, the DNC until late in the game into the grassroots networks that, primar- that primarily um, were in the majority black uh, cities of Birmingham, Montgomery, and Mobile. And um, it wasn't until they really poured money in those places did you see um, the, the, the kind of um, voting turnout that, 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 that was needed. But in retrospect, that could have been a black woman running for Senate. And it, will they take the risk in these places like Louisiana, like Georgia, like Alabama, where there's a significant percentage of, of black voters, one, who can cross over? And that's what Stacey Abrams has showed. You can cross over. And in a in a conservative place, Andrew Gillum. I mean, Florida is a conservative place. Um, it, it's it's a mixed bag. It's very diverse. But you can run unapologetically black and actually win. So the the challenge for the DNC is: Will they support a Gillum? Will they support a Stacey Abrams? A second go round? Um, because I I do think you don't want to waste the infrastructure that they've built over time um, and not provide that kind of investment again. But as you know, I mean, when you have somebody like Joe Biden, it's almost, I mean, in a way you're going backwards to to, to the safe bet. Mm-hmm. And I don't want— Well, it's not clear that it's the, so safe. I mean, I think that's exactly what, I, what we're talking right. about. Is it safe? That's right. You know, and that theory, yeah, Hillary right. Clinton was safe, and she was, you know, running against— a candidate who had higher negatives than any candidate in anybody's memory. And, That's it, it, exactly and it wasn't right. safe. That's exactly right. But it's in our political DNA that somehow a white man is going to galvanize um, black voters, one, and the rest of us because there's this inherent leadership in white men um, but, I mean, that's the, that's the sort of naive charisma theory. But there's also the kind of the cynical political science theory, which is that to win the presidency, you need swing voters. That means you need people who are acceptable on both sides of the aisle. And maybe that people imagine that's a white man. And then, you know, at the margins or maybe the vice presidential candidate, then you can think about adding some component of diversity. I mean, I think that's the old, that really is the old way of thinking. Yeah, and I and I just think that's going to be more difficult um, moving forward as demographic shifts. We're becoming a much more diverse country, and uh, and again, you you have people of color who can win in places where there are the they are truly the minority. You don't need to to be a member of the majority class to win anymore. So and mm-hmm. so the the, the the people now see gr- more options, and so it, but if you don't present more options. Um, you're you're just st- throttling the enthusiasm for change that sparked a Barack Obama, that sparked a Stacey Abrams. People want something new. Andre, I'm going to put it to you bluntly. Can a Democrat regain the White House in 2020 without a person of color on the ticket? No, I don't think so. Um, I, th- I think we've seen um, over the, at least with the Hillary example, that fail miserably. That... Um, at some point, you need to honor the people of your party. And the Democrats are the diverse party. And so if, if they really want to honor um, the folks voting for them, they, they must have 
a person of color. And I'm going to go out there on a limb Please. and to say, you better have a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, just because the, the grassroots organizing in cities, um, particularly in the South, the Midwest, the East Coast, mm-hmm. black women, that, that's the infrastructure. I mean, you, we can talk a little bit more about unions and, and other um, um, things that make up that infrastructure. But black women get out black votes and white voters. And so if you do not, in this day and age, when, when black women are rising in every category, education, um, income, um, professionalism, all these different things, they're, 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 they're showing progress out um, beyond their black male peers and, and even to their white male and, and, and white female peers to, to a great degree, that, that you got to honor them at some point. And, and, I, and I, I, I see um, that in, in policy that, you know, yes, black women still earn less than, than, than everyone else, all the other categories. And um, so they're, they're, black women are powerful. They just lack protection in terms of policy. And at some point, you, the way you get protection is to put people in office. So, Andre, now that, you're, at the highest office. now that you're out there on the— now that you're out there on the limb yeah. saying there has to be an African-American woman on the ticket, let me try and push you a little further out there. Right now, the most significant African-American woman in the race is Kamala Harris. Right. Does she have to be the nominee for the Democrats to retake the presidency? I mean, that would be the strongest possible formulation. It's Kamala or bust. Yeah, I see. I'm 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 for a woman um, becoming the nominee, a black woman mm-hmm. becoming the nominee. And she's the I one think- running right now. Absolutely. So you I, I, are saying Kamala or bust? Yeah, I, I mean, okay. I, I, mean, I, I would go out there and say Kamala for the good of the country. Sure. That um, we need a woman. We really need a black woman mm-hmm. um, who can galvanize um, multiple groups. Um, she has the credentials, but more importantly, she represents what we want to see in the future. We want to see someone who can truly represent America in a much different way. I mean, of the history of the presidents, I mean, only one has not been a, a white male. Only one. Yep. I mean, that's extraordinary. Scary. Yep. Extraordinary. So we need this as a, a, a country. We need to see someone that represents a, a, a group that has been striving over time, and rem- and remember, she she's a, a Howard um, graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a member of a sorority. Mm-hmm. She um, she is tied intimately. You cannot say she's not black. I mean, she's of mixed heritage. Right. So now that you brought she, that up, but now I'm going to ask. Now I'm going to ask yeah. you about it. I mean, I, so I've heard this occasionally from younger, more left people who say, "Look, you know, Barack Obama was one thing." You know, his father was Kenyan. He wasn't an African-American in the ordinary sense of the term. He wasn't, as they put it, a descendant of slaves. And I've heard some people say, young black people saying, look, we need to define African-American to mean a descendant of slaves. And that may not be true of Kamala Harris, although there may be some, maybe that she's a descendant of slaves from Jamaica, but not slaves in the United States. Yeah, and I, I I just don't believe you don't that it. when it, yeah I don't buy it. you know th- th- these arguments of can you are you black enough mm-hmm. to represent they they really don't go anywhere because at the end of the day it, if you have brown skin um, you experience 
um, a lot of the, th- the, the the same things, regardless if you are an, an involuntary um, immigrant or if you're a voluntary immigrant, mm-hmm. um, that um, your uh, economic, socioeconomically, you can look similar, mm-hmm. not maybe exactly the same, but you definitely share experiences with someone um, who, um, of a descendant of the enslaved. So, so Kamala Harris's her social identification with African-Americans, which she's been doing, as far as we can tell, her whole life, should be yeah. more than enough. Then. And y- your view is that the African-American community across the board will say that's more than black enough for us. Absolutely. My, my only fear of uh, Kamala is that it's the same that um, they, that, Black the black communities um, indicted Hillary with, and um, Kamala was a prosecutor, and it's a very tough prosecutor, a very tough prosecutor, very tough on crime, lots uh, of incarcerated do, people. Absolutely. So I, I think that's the greatest fear, but I also think that white, more conservative folks will like that about Kamala, that um, she can be, quote unquote, tough on crime, because that still resonates with a lot of white folks, that this idea that you can punish black people really, um, um, uh, white people love th- that quality, this the ability to punish black people. So um, <laughs> That's a depressing thought, however, it for, is for a depressing to have to depend thought, on that but, to be elected. Oh, yeah, but... You know, you see these prosecutors um, who, in terms of uh, if you're black and you're a prosecutor, it's a trade-off that I think many black folks can deal with. Because, and and this goes back to what we said earlier, I still think that there are a lot of black people who've internalized that we are at fault for um, violence in, in communities, for poverty. And so it's 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 not we're not this monolithic group that's saying so she might um, get some African American votes precisely oh, on those same grounds you're saying that is exactly. Um, let's talk about then her road, and here I want to ask about the primary system and whether it's oh, yeah, yeah, whether it's yeah. fundamentally broken. I mean, here you you're making a very strong argument that we need an African American woman at the top of the ticket. And she's got to go through New Hampshire and Iowa before any place else, (laughs) not places with any substantial uh, African-American population. Neither is a place even with a very substantial urban population of any kind, black or white. So what's up with that? Yeah, it's going to be tough in the primary. She can make it to the general. Um, She uh, I think she's going to be fine. But uh, being a prosecutor, I think it's actually going to hurt her in the primary. Um, I think the primary voters tend to lean left. That exactly, mm-hmm. um, and I actually think that she, she's part of an establishment. Although she's not been around, uh, at least she hasn't been in the public eye an incredibly long period of time. When compared to a Mayor Pete, for instance, he's going to come off as novel. And you know, between Obama and Trump, there's a somewhat of a trend of of finding something, finding a celebrity type, a new something new. Um, You're talking about so, Pete uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the mayor of South right. Bend, uh, openly gay, speaks seven languages, family from Malta of all places, unusual <laughs> unusual person. Yeah, um, you don't you don't find uh, folks from Malta running for president every day, and and so. I, you know, I, I think that's, she's going to be up against that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think she is going to resonate with a lot of folks because of um, the, many of the hearings where she stood out in defending um, women's rights, 
or um, and other and other issues. She's incredibly intense uh, in the hearing room. There's no question about it. And if she's if she cleverly uses clips from that, maybe she can draw attention to it. But I I wonder if I can just push you a little bit. I mean, in a world where the Democratic Party needs people of color on the ticket, is there something implicitly or explicitly racist about Iowa and New Hampshire being the early tests? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, we've always had to sort of um, perform for white people in those places, and um, they're going to have to perform. I mean, I, I, I think that. But, I mean, the, maybe the maybe the party is, needs its early primaries to be someplace that looks more like the demographics that the party is oh, is absolutely. looking for. I mean, do do you see that as something that's changeable over time? You know, I haven't thought much about it, but I do, I, I have thought about, you know, why Iowa? I always, mm-hmm. I mean, it really cuts down the number of folks who consider running. Mm-hmm. If you have to go through these yeah. um, very white states um, early on, a lot of people just will not get in the race, really because of resources, that that if they get a slow start, they d- just don't, because of their race, don't have the, the resources and backing. Um, as other resource candidates. And so I, I, it's a barrier, no question about it. So let's talk about my friend Cory Booker because yeah. um, he's the other prominent African-American in the race right now. Um, he's also been in the public eye for longer even than Kamala Harris, Senator Harris, um, yeah. because he started getting national publicity when he started running to be mayor of Newark, New Jersey, long before yeah. he won. The first time he ran and lost, there was a documentary film made about his defeat. So, he, you know, Corey was born to be famous, and he's, he's been famous pretty much his entire adult life. Um, what's your sense of why it has to be Kamala Harris, has to be a woman? Why couldn't Corey similarly motivate uh, an African-American base, including African-American women, um, towards whom he's respectful and friendly and, you know, otherwise positive? Yeah. Corey's a viable candidate. I, I think he is— um, no, I think he certainly will um, be in the top tier of of folks who may get the the the, the nod. I, I do think he made a critical mistake long in in the long run. I think his siding with um, the kind of ed reforms that have been have proven to be a liability. Educational reforms, yeah. Education reform, mm-hmm. and he went all in. He strongly um, supported or, school choice. That's right. And, raised a lot of. Uh, private money uh, to invest in the city schools. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so um, in this environment, um, if you are a proponent that it, of anything that looks similar to what um, Betsy DeVos is a proponent of, um, it, the, your, your competitors are going to hold that against you. And, and trust me when I say the uh, teacher unions are going to nail them with that. Um, the um, black communities in which um, ed reform hit hard and where black teachers lost their jobs. You know, I was in New Orleans um, during Hurricane Katrina and the 7,500 um, um, teacher or um, employees, school employees lost their job. Now, it's not um, it hasn't been proven that that was purposeful in any way or planned in a way uh, to, to open up the doors for ed reform um, to come in. However, when ed reform really solidified itself, the percentage of black women teachers went significantly down. And that happened in Newark. 
And that happened in D.C. And so if if you have that that mark against you, it is going to be hard to overcome in an environment where teachers are striking in multiple states. So I, I think he's a viable candidate, but I also think that ed reform is a liability for him mm-hmm. that it's going to be hard to overcome. And you don't think he could use that sort of the way you suggested that Kamala Harris could use her prosecutorial background as something to appeal to median white voters? No, it's, it's it's just going to be hard because I also think that Republicans have not been all that keen on choice. Yeah, it seems like it's a policy whose whose moment was very strongly present in the late 90s and early 2000s and has to some degree faded from being a central popular position with the exception, as you mentioned, of Betsy DeVos. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, fascinating. So, and I, I should add, I think you, your background is precisely in uh, educational studies, is it not? I mean, that was what your first first training and specialization was in. So you know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in education, I, I learned a, a bunch of things about the, the politics of it. I've, I, I learned that um, it, particularly in the early 2000s, Democrats and Republicans were willing to work together uh, around education reform. So I, I saw interest convergence firsthand. The problem is that Republicans um, were gained most from that uh, uh, alliance that the um, the governors that got elected um, were the off of of school choice and, and education reform were primarily Republicans. You d- you haven't seen Democrats rise up be, um, um, by par- or sort of through this interest convergence, mm-hmm. and that's where I think Democrats really need to hold true to. They can hold true to their principles. It's okay to say you're for government protecting the rights of people. It's okay to say that we're for a local school board. It's okay to say that we're going to support teachers' unions and labor in general. That if you abandon those issues, that it's going to be very tough for you um, in 2020. That the differentiator is going to, is going to go back to, are you truly a progressive Democrat and the, those who can really um, show those bon- bona fides early, they're going to really have a sh- shot. That's why, you know, a, a person we haven't mentioned will, I think, will always have a shot. And that's Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. um, to a certain extent. Bernie, mm-hmm. will, I mean, they're going to be able to raise money. They're going to be in the conversation because they're, they're showing their progressive bona fides. I just think that, that those two folks, again— their their time may have passed, mm-hmm. and I mean, and, and, and you know, not just in terms of election, but just in terms of a white person running. You know, sure. So, so let me let me end then our last question with it with yep. a curveball. So you've made I think an extremely compelling argument um, that if the Democrats want to win, they need a person of color to be the candidate in twenty twenty. What if through some combination of um, the primary process and politics and money in the party? That doesn't happen. And the Democrats managed to run a ticket with two white people on it, the same way they did last time. And they lose. Is there a moment for African-Americans to say, look, the party has taken us for granted for too long. We need some alternative. We need to no longer be treated by the party as people who will inevitably support Democrats because the alternative is, is Donald Trump. Is it possible, in other words, that African-Americans could essentially become captive to the overlap in their interests with progressive politics. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and I would not be surprised if that actually played itself out, that at, at some point, blacks have to be respected um, by um, gaining the nomination and support of, of white Americans. I mean, so we're what's so the alternative? To, but what's the alternative? Oh, it's, I mean, I do think that it, it may not look like a third party, mm-hmm. but it'll show up as sort of like a like a Tea Party movement mm-hmm. or um, a, some type of um, inside the Democratic Party, uh, a fractured um, group of legislators who are just uncompromising in their approach to deliver certain goods. Because, you know, without the Black Caucus, you don't get much of the legislation. Correct. So we we can force the hand of people. And so I do believe that um, at some point you have to put that out there, that we will no longer vote monolithically for Democrats. Um, and and we're, because we we are used to it is sad to say we're so used to seeing two white fo- uh, two white people on a ticket and and feeling like oh we're going to this is the lesser of the two evils we have to vote for them no you don't no you don't there's there are other party candidates who are in the running um there are third party candidates um you do not have to and if we do not get a black person and if we don't if we don't get a black woman on that ticket you know i, I you know, I would almost encourage folks to um, find an alternative. Wow. So thank you, Andre, for a ray of optimism and a word of stern warning. That's right. I'm very grateful to you uh, for joining us here on Deep Background. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. In my conversation with Andre, I wanted to know something about 2016 and something about 2020. What I wanted to know about 2016 was, did Hillary Clinton lose the election in the end because of her failure to put a person of color anywhere on the ticket and her failure to energize African-American female voters? After speaking to Andre, I think we're closer to being able to say that the answer to that is yes. And Andre also thinks, as clearly as it's possible to think anything, that the Democrats can't afford to make that mistake again. If he's right, then 2020 is a year where the Democrats will have to put a person of color on the ticket. And if Andre has his way at the top of the ticket, and if he's really specific, he thinks we need Kamala Harris. We need an African-American woman who's capable of motivating African-American women to turn out in numbers, turn the election, and defeat Donald Trump. We'll talk a lot about the election in the coming months. We'll talk about it till we're blue in the face. But this conversation with Andre makes me think, maybe most of that talk isn't that useful. Maybe in the end, what we need to know is who's on the ticket. And if it's an African-American woman, the Democrats will have a good chance of winning. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. 
we have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.